Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast, where we uncover the stories that shaped the business owner. Brought to you by Lisa Settle and Isla O'Hara. Welcome to the Business Diaries podcast. My name is Lisa Settle. And my name is Isla O'Hara. And we'll be your hosts for today. The Business Diaries is a platform for businessmen and women to share their stories relating to their experiences and lessons learned in business. We had three fantastic years of live events, and then all of a sudden, events became a thing of the past. Thank goodness for technology, though. Our podcast has been the ideal way to keep the stories coming, something Isla and I have been most grateful for. We don't mind putting up with some things and putting things on hold, but the stories, that's not one of them. I'm really looking forward to our story today. Who's in the guest seat, Isla? Oh, I'm excited to say that we are welcoming Hasmita Reardon to the show today. Just let me tell you a little bit about her. Hasmita came to the UK from war-torn Uganda in 1972. She was just 11 years old, with no money and unable to speak a word of English. She is now a multi-award-winning entrepreneur who specialises in buy-to-let properties and mentors anyone who wants to learn the property business. She's a mum to three grown-up sons, has one granddaughter, and in 2012, Hassie founded New Leaf Support, a charity to help anyone experiencing domestic abuse. Welcome to the Business Diaries, Hassie. Thank you for having me, Isla and Lisa. Welcome, Hassie. Thank you. Well, I can't wait to share your story with us. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over the podcast airways over to you, Hassie. Thank you. Right. Okay. So I was um, a happy 11-year-old girl living in Uganda. It was a very small village and my birthplace. We woke up one sunny morning in August 1972 and expecting it to be a normal day. So to me, that was going to school, having my breakfast, um, fighting with my brother probably, to find my parents and village in sheer panic. There was an announcement made and everybody was glued to the radio. Idi Amin, the ruler and president of Uganda, ordered all Ugandan Asians to leave his country within three months. So our life was just about to be turned upside down. Me being an 11-year-old really didn't know what was going on, but I knew something awful had happened. He had ordered that everybody leave behind all their businesses, property and money, and all the Ugandan Asians to leave the country only in three months' time. He felt Ugandan Asians were taking the work away from his people. However, it was the Asians who were the main employers of the country. Idi Amin used to quote... I consider myself the most powerful figure in the world and hero of Africa. He was in fact known as a butcher of Uganda. So in three short months, we had to try and organize our lives. And can you imagine trying to um, put everything into a couple of suitcases, but we was only allowed one. You know, you've got your whole life um, possessions. And if you look around your house now, what have you got that you can put in one suitcase? So that's all we was allowed and some money and um, gold. That was it. So my dad started on his mission of queuing for days in humid heat to get visas and airline tickets. One day he just collapsed due to exhaustion and stress. 
Once we got the flight ticket with BOAC Airlines to Heathrow Airport, we then had to endure more queuing with vital vaccinations before entering the UK. We started our mission of packing again. We were allowed one suitcase, like I said, and um, my suitcase, I've still got that, and it's, um, it's a priceless item to me, and I would never let it go because that suitcase carries the whole of my history and a reminder if I ever have a bad day. It's one of those old-fashioned, thick, almost cardboard feel with two buckle locks and a handle, only 22 inches by 15 inches. It smells musty and now very tatty, but it's my pride. There's an address on it still. It's got Intobe Airport to Heathrow, UK. Well, what do we do? We didn't have an address, so we couldn't send it anywhere and hope it will get to the Heathrow Airport and um, come on the um, turnstile like we all pick up when we do our holiday luggage. We still had so much to pack in that suitcase to start our new life. Boxes of belongings were sent to the UK by cargo, but none of that ever turned up in the UK. We spent quite a few years looking for it. And you know what? I would love for that to turn up today because it would be interesting to see what we actually chose to put in there. But at the time, at least it kept us um, busy and trying to get our possessions over to the UK as much as we possibly could. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. They're just materialistic stuff. And, you know, as long as we were safe, we were happy to just um, have a go at that. Anyway, as the time went on during these three months, there was a curfew put in place. No one was allowed to go to school, be out after 5pm or have lights on. So every night we would sit and hear the troops known as the death squad driving up and down guarding the village. You could see villagers just sneaking, having a peak view from their curtains to see what was going on. If anybody was found out and about after this time, there were instructions to shoot them and take them away. And one day, we, me and my brother went out to play and um, I didn't, you know, children don't have time. They don't have time concept. And me and my brother were still out playing on the building site. And I literally saw the um, squad cars going round and the military and they literally walked past as we were hiding behind a sand um, pit and where the building stuff was. Like my, bro my brother um, tore his, he fell over and there was blood coming from his knee. And I literally, as soon as the troops went, I literally dragged, carried him all the way home and he was completely bleeding. But my mum was so relieved to see us and, you know, it's naughty. That was really naughty. But obviously, like I said, people, children don't have time concepts and we were just busy playing. Anyway, the day arrived, 24th of November 1972. My dad said we now have to leave our home country. We left with our one suitcase, summer clothing on. My mum was allowed to take her gold she could wear and just £25, which when I worked it out is actually equivalent of £330 today. So what would you do with £330 today if you had to go and um, just get on a plane and start a new life at another country? It's, um, it's a thought for me as well, because I, you know, it doesn't even buy you a handbag now. We made our way to Intebet Airport in a coach with other people from the village. On the way to the airport, the coach was stopped at military checkpoints. The military men barged on the coach and started searching and throwing things around. It was so scary. 
They were taking what they wanted and were beating people up, even women. There was lots of screaming going on, but we tried to stay calm as possible right at the back of the coach. We were lucky not to be hit. Obviously, they got um, bored and started to decided to get off the coach. And then we made our way to the airport, which we made very safely, despite that experience. My dad saw us off at the departure point. He wasn't allowed to enter UK, you see, because he had um, a Ugandan passport. And Ugandan, anyone with Ugandan passports had to stay in that country or try and get across the border somewhere else. So he categorically was told he was not to enter UK. So he made sure that my mum and us were safely um, with our families in the UK. My mum had a British protected passport, luckily enough with mine and my brother's name on it, which isn't a proper passport, actually. We still had to go through all the immigration checks, which took five years to get proper citizenship. Anyway, it broke my heart leaving him. I was always a daddy's girl and wanting to be with him all the time and used to cry to go to the airport where he used to work. I love planes and I still do, despite my experience. So I would go with him to work and I would sit there at the airport watching the planes take off and land and I loved it so much. And this would be a daily struggle for him, but sometimes I was allowed to go, sometimes I wasn't. Anyway, I didn't know if I could see him again, if ever. He was standing at the um, departure gate with tears rolling down his eyes. I was crying and reminded him again to look after my baby doll, which was tucked up in my bed. I wasn't allowed to take it um, with me, you see, because they thought that we would use dolls and toys or anything else to smuggle money and gold. To that, he nodded and cried as his family walked off into the crowd. And to this day, I, I just don't, can't visage how he must have been feeling because he must have been thinking, actually, I might not see my family again. And that was probably the last time he ever saw his wife and children. Going through security, there were very heavy checks put in place. I could hear noises of firearms, but now I'd become immune to it. And as an 11-year-old child, that's quite a lot to deal with. Now I'm an adult. Think back how um, resilient children are. A Ugandan security guard pushed my mum into a cubicle. I was standing there holding my little brother's hand very tightly, who was nine at the time. He's my baby brother and I was his big sister, so I was the only one to take care of him at that time anyway. She was searching for hidden gold and money. Lots of people, lots of Ugandans did try and um, smuggle money across because, you know, remember we're humans and we're in a panic state. And we do what we can to take all our materialistic stuff. But having to go to another country, you did need money. And gold is something that's a possession of wealth. And you would be able to start a new life with it, even if it saw you through a couple of months. I was standing outside this cubicle and there was a gap in the curtain, which had, um, it was a tiny, um, tiny, just a tiny curtain. And there was a, a gap in it. And all I could see was a small gun to my mum's head. Just in case she resisted the guard taking anything from her, she would shoot. The only thing she was wearing was a wedding necklace and a couple of other items. But for some reason, she decided not to take any of it. And obviously, had that happened, my mum would have just let her. She wouldn't have risked um, her not having it. 
I was standing outside with my heart thumping, waiting for a noise of a shotgun. And my mum just um, blown away. To my relief, she came out of the cubicle. The whole experience was so overwhelming. After my brother and our search, she ordered us to proceed to the departure gate. We started walking to the gate and I, I thought to myself, I used to love this airport. Had some lovely memories with my dad working there and how I was spoiled as a little girl with the staff giving me grapes and cakes and things and um, seeing the planes landing and taking off and, and now it just become a complete war zone. But today I still want to carry those lovely memories of my dad there. I try not to think about the um, awful experience. Anyway, we asked my mum and we said, why are there lots of people just um, laying on the um, airport floor as we made our way to departure gates and onto the tarmac? And she said, she said, um, don't worry, darling, they're just sleeping um, and try not to try not to stress over it. And she just scurried us to the gate and onto the tarmac. My mum told me years later, when I was an adult, that people on the floor were actually bodies. And to me now, it makes sense with all the noise and that was going on. And obviously, since then, I've read about it. Um, there's lots of Facebook pages I go on and those stories all match up. So um, how that my mum done that with two children, I'll, I'll, to this day, I'll never know. So for the first time in our lives, we were going to fly across the world. I'd never been on a plane before. I didn't know what to expect, really. Where would we, I was just thinking, where would we end up? Where are we going to be living? And how would we even, how long is it going to take to get there? And on the on the flight, I was, I was so sick because I've never, ever flown before. There was constant, um, I just, just didn't fly very well. Just obviously it was my first time. We sat on the plane for some time on the tarmac and feeling incredibly nervous. There was complete silence. You could hear a pin drop apart from babies crying. Eventually, I heard the engine plane roaring and the first time I'd hear that noise and the plane just speeded up the runway and up into the night sky. As young as I was, I knew then the relief I felt that I knew I was safe. And even today, when I go on a plane to go on holiday, wherever I go, that feeling is always with me, but not in a negative way. It's just the safetyness of that feeling that I have. But obviously now I've, I'll go on a plane on a holiday, which is fine. But nothing could have been worse than the experience we had over the last three months. Eventually, we arrived at Heathrow Airport and it was 2 a.m. on the 25th of November, 1972. So you can imagine that was just a month before Christmas. Everybody was hustling and bustling, probably getting on with their lives. And we was going through this experience, but it was um, a safety experience for me. So um, that was fine. Everybody from the plane left and made their way with their families that came to meet them. And we were sitting along in the arrival lounge with just one suitcase. We could not speak English at all. There was no way we could communicate. It was the loneliest time ever. My mum, like I said, is a very strong woman. She's still, she's still to this day, is as strong as she was when she, that's from since that day. She signed language to a passerby 
who was also Indian, so obviously knew what had happened. And um, to find my uncle, she had um, his number written on a small piece of paper and no money to make the phone call. So he lent her, she asked to borrow this two pence and um, he actually did the payphone thing for her. She didn't know how to use a payphone, first time we saw one. He was a lovely, kind man, and he made the call for her. And my uncle came to the airport accompanied by um, British um, Red Cross charity. They was just about amazing. And they bought some blankets and some warm clothing. But obviously, I didn't understand why. As we left the airport, it was absolutely freezing cold. The first time I ever saw snow, and it was bitter cold, and there were a lot of Christmas lights around, which I realise now were Christmas. I've never actually experienced Christmas before. Our new life and journey began in a refugee camp, which was disused army barracks at West Morning, Kent, which is actually only about 20 minutes away from me. And I only found it maybe about five years ago because I decided to drive there. And I didn't realise that the army barracks, because of what had happened in 1972, are now... Um, listed buildings and they're still there so I went and found the actual block that we stayed in it was block four room two so our bedroom was a curtain between each family and that's it we were grateful for donations the warm clothes and food but one thing was missing my dad Idi Amin and his army killed and tortured over 350,000 Asians so my mum and all the charities that were helping us at the time presumed he was he was one of them and had been tortured and killed. But there was no way my mum was giving up on that. And I still, like I said, was a daddy's girl. And I always, always knew that he would be with us one day. But how and when, I don't know. I'm not looking for sympathy or sadness around my story. If Edie, I mean, hadn't disrupted our lives and I'll still be living in a war zone country and not have a life I have today. It's my horrendous experience has shaped me to be a fearful, fearless and a charitable businesswoman I am today. I believe things happen for a reason. Anything in life is possible. No problem lasts forever. And in my case, what didn't kill me made me stronger. And we know that quote as business people, we use that quote a lot. My business mission and my life believes that everyone should have a roof over their head, feel safe and secure. I can't help everyone, but I can and have made a difference to thousands of people where I possibly can. And actually, my motto is to give back to the country that gave us so much safety and a brand new life. Thank you for listening. Well, thank you, Hesse. That's quite a story. I know we've only heard a snippet, really, but, oh, my goodness, so many experiences at such a young age. Um, you know, you, your brother was even younger than you. Yeah. From your mum's point of view, I can imagine she was relieved when that plane landed, absolutely relieved. But then, of course, you were safe for that part of the journey, but you had another part of the journey to, to still carry on with. So, you yeah. know, as a mum gosh, the emotions and the things that she was going through. What did you know about the UK? I mean, I know that it was the first time you'd flown. It was the first time that you had um, travelled. But did you know anything about the UK 
before that? All I knew, my uncle had come over to the UK to do some um, education. My um, granddad insisted because everybody goes to London, you know, it's the, everybody's dream. So he managed to come over here and he used to send us photographs. And all I saw was um, a photograph of a car with him leaning against the car and um, lots of snow around him. And I remember <laughs> playing with um, with my cousins and they're all going, look, it's all white stuff. It's all snow. <laughs> um, yeah, and it must have been. And that's so what you saw and, when you landed. That's all. So yeah, and that's what I saw when I landed. Yes, if I'd landed in the summer, I think I would have been really confused. So that's what <laughs> I had in my head anyway. Yeah, but it's the first yeah. time I touched snow, and obviously, you know, that's an experience for any child. Yeah, sure. And it really took me back when you said about the two p for the phone call. I remember that <laughs> you know the the pay boxes with the with the the big old fashioned large two p. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and your and poor mum having to try and communicate. And I said to my mum this morning, she said, because I phone her every morning, and she goes, what, what are you doing today? So I was telling her, and she said, remember to mention the 2P. She hasn't oh. it. And she said, I will, she said, I even said to the man, I will borrow it off of him, and I will pay it back one day. And she said, I'll always be grateful um, to him because it was just – you know, it must be so lonely when you think about it when you're on your own. She was probably only in her 30s. Yeah, um, with yeah. So that 2P was symbolic, wasn't it? It was the start of very, your very much so. Your life in, in the UK. Yeah, so we still owe this 2P to this man wherever he is. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's amazing, amazing. I mean, it must just have been such a frightening experience on so many levels we Level. can't even begin to imagine but I mean I I have a burning question which I guess many of our listeners will have too is were you reunited with your father what what happened yes we um the charities were helping us but like I said my mum wasn't giving up she was constantly on their case and funny enough I'm like that if I want something I will keep on at someone till I get it so I can see where I get it from but yeah she um she insisted on getting help we had um media as well I've got still got the newspaper cuttings of that and um we, my mum started to get a lot of hate mail actually because not a lot of people wanted all these Asians into the UK so Luckily enough, she couldn't read, but the charities could, and they just destroyed those um, letters. Uh, that was, we did television, we did newspapers. Eventually, it was the Red Cross charity again, which I do support quite a lot, that found my dad in Austria, in Vienna. And he, what they did was they, he, that was another camp out there that they'd set up for refugees um, that could manage to get across the border. So my dad destroyed his passport and literally flushed it down the toilet. So he didn't actually have a passport in his own mind and then went to this charity and said he hasn't got a passport. And they smuggled him across the border to Vienna. So and then we got the news that he was safe and well after it was four months, took four months for that. So for the four months, we didn't know where he was. We just they presumed he was dead. Um, anyway but obviously you can't give up on somebody under that statement you know mm. you just can't yeah. begin to imagine you know what that must have been like in a world that we live in now with you know twitter and facebook and you know the sort of internet news where you can you know you can get communications in and out yeah. you know instantly you yeah. just can't imagine being in a situation where you can't get hold of someone and you can't 
get an update on what's going on. Oh, I just can't get over how brave you 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 all were and and mm-hmm. and your mother. I would love to meet her one day. Oh, she's lovely. <laughs> she's so lovely. She's so brave even today. But you know, going back to Facebook and things, um, I I decided I wanted to go to Vienna one weekend. So my husband took me there. I was sitting in the hotel room and I decided to put on the Ugandan Asian Facebook page saying, I'm in Vienna. Does anybody know where this camp is that um, all the refugees came to? And somebody put um, put up this town. So I said to my husband, right, I want to go there. No, not a clue how to get there. Uh, we got on the trains one after the other. It was pouring hard with rain. And my husband kept saying, do you really want to do this? Because we, we were just getting lost. I said, yeah, I've got to do it. I, I will get there. Anyway, we did. We found it and we got a taxi there and it was exactly like the photos that he sent um, sent over eventually after we found him. He started sending photos. Everything was still the same. And it's still like it today because they're using it for asylum seekers now. Wow. I went over there yeah, and, and I started to walk into the gate and the woman said, no, you can't come in here. I said, I just want some photos. My dad was here and she wouldn't have any of it. So me being me, I started walking, and there was all these asylum seekers walking around. My husband from Iraq, my husband was very um, scared, thinking, oh, my God, she's got a huge backbone and she's not letting it go. And I walked around the whole perimeter of this building, and I said, lift me up. So he lifted <laughs> me up, and I'm taking photos. He said, you're going to get us killed. <laughs> so it's fine. And, um, yeah, so I managed to get lots of photos for my mum and then we had the taxi waiting next. It was right in the middle of um, some rural area. There's no way we would, could have got a taxi back. Um, but I'm so glad I'd done that and I left some flowers there by the gate and um, come away. But I'm so glad I did it. So, again, that was the power of social media at that time anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. And how long did it take for your dad? To, did your dad make it to the UK? Oh, yeah, sorry, that was your question, wasn't it? Yes, he did make it. um, Again, the Red Cross charity flew him over and we knew he was coming. So I've got my, um, I was given a lovely red sari. I put that on and we had a really lovely, um, like a whole, like a party there at the camp when my dad turned up. Um, It was so lovely. Yeah. So how long, how long did that take for him to get to you after you'd left him? What was the gap in between? Yeah, um, it was four months. Four months, okay. Four months of searching and, yeah. So Yeah. And then, obviously, once we were united, we had to leave the camp. But that's another chapter. Yeah, <laughs> so. yes. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's a big story. There's so much to ask, so much to, to know. Yeah. But, obviously, what, what I'd like to know is, is, have you ever been back to Uganda? No, I haven't. I want to go. I've, I've tried to go. But something's stopping me. I think it's, I'm just still very scared. Lots of people, loads of Ugandan Asians have gone back and the new president there now wants the Asians back because he wants you to start businesses. And it was a wealthy country at that time, mm. but it's not now. Because, yeah. You know, um, yeah, I would love to go back. And I think I might just get brave enough to go back one day. I just would love to walk around my village. I, I, could, I can just visualise it. I know exactly my way around it still. So... Um, I might just be brave one day and go, but I, yeah. I just worry that it might kick off again and I end up back in that same situation. Situation, and that, yeah. Yeah, and it's quite, you know, it's natural to feel like that, isn't it, something? I think I it is. I mean, I, 
yeah, no, I think your feelings are absolutely quite normal given what happened to you. Yeah, definitely. yeah. But, I did book it, you know, but I, I cancelled it. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. And then the second time we booked it, um, the Ebola broke out and um, we decided not to go again. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, despite everything, you come across to me from, I've not known you very long, but you yeah. come across as a very confident lady, someone very naturally comfortable with who you are, very at ease and at peace. Yeah. And it doesn't seem as if you're carrying a weight from the past, you know, when you, no. so, you know, is that, how much of that is in your blood and bones so to speak and how much of that do you attribute to the events you've shared with us today are you naturally I mean your mum sounds like she's a formidable woman um amazing yeah. lady so do you think that's that was in your bones you no. know, and you're in the genes or do you think it's what happened to you no it wasn't in my I was always the quiet girl at school shy uh, never, never were top of the class never never bright really I don't think I was and because you only had schooling from eight till one so but I was I wasn't no I wasn't I think I think it's my experience that's made me like that because mm. if you come through something like that as a child you know even what's going on today hasn't really scared me despite you know I, I, I've lost my uncle through it there are other people we've lost through this COVID that's going on now but it's not scaring it's not scaring me that much because not, I'm doing as I'm told by the government like everybody but we I know we will come through this same as I come through that and sometimes this experience will make you stronger and it'll make everybody stronger and I think that's what did it for me because that that experience I went through didn't kill me it didn't it made me into a person it made me into a kind caring charitable person because now somebody helped me that you know loads of people helped us um, when we come over Mm. And and I know how they fa- I know how that felt. So every time somebody needs help, you know, the homeless, the um, charity that I do, I am sort of standing in their shoes. Yeah, yeah, and I, I yeah, and I think Isla, we we were saying that that there was a connection, weren't we, with with what's going on now, really, and a and part of your story. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I was saying like it, it does feel a bit surreal because I'm moving house. I've started packing. And I'm thinking, you know, there's this thing going on and everybody's panic buying and, you know, and everybody is trying to save their life. That's what you are doing. That's why you're staying indoors. You're trying to save your life and everybody around you. And and it's very similar, you know, in, in war. But we're not in a war. We're in a silent war, I suppose. But we are allowed to go out. You can go and get your food. So it's not it's not as bad as what I went through, put it that way. Well, that was it. You said you said to us yesterday when when we were talking. I just remember this. It was well. At least we've got our lights on. Yeah, you got your lights on. Yeah, really. You got your home comfort. You got your own bed. You can go out for a walk. No one's going to shoot you. You know, you might get fine because that's that's the way it is at the moment. But that's not end and all, is it? But it's um it, and 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 you know we're all in it together. Same as we was then. There was hundreds and thousands of Asians and. We was all in it together. We supported each other. And it's funny when um, tragic things happen. As a community, you come together. And it's mm. happened again now. And God knows how much work I've done through this COVID, giving food parcels and, you know, trying to keep myself safe at the same time. 
but it is it is a, a pandemic and same as that was some sort of a pandemic you know and it happens and it's happened quite a lot ever since with other countries with yeah. earthquakes and things and we do pull together as a community and that's what I'm I'm doing at the moment again you know yes yeah, human nature isn't it yeah yeah human nature and that's to, what gets to... you through yeah, absolutely. So fast forward in today, to today, sorry, you, you, you're alluding to the work that you're doing. Just yeah. tell us what life is like now. What are you up to? What are you doing? And, and, and tell us a bit about the charity. Right. The moment, well, I'm running my business, which is um, a property business. And um, again, the ethos behind that is to give people roof over people's heads. And be honest the reason I started property was my it was my security I didn't want to be homeless again but of course I've took it to the extreme <laughs> so I'm not going to be homeless again hopefully not <laughs> anyway <laughs> so yeah so that helps a lot of people the other part of the business is um, domestic abuse that's what the charity does and again it, it is the sort of thing that provides um, refuge I have got a refuge a small one and I'm just about to get another property to do another refuge and um, again, this was another fight on my hands because I decided to open a refuge that isn't actually wasn't legally allowed where you would take women within the area and um, if they had a son of the age of 14, you refuges don't take them if you've got animals, if you know there's like all these reasons and I'm thinking, how dare somebody just put a rule on somebody that you can't come into this refuge, you can't have asylum because of these rules. So mm. me being me, I broke every single rule in the book and converted that refuge to somebody who could not go to a normal refuge. So my first client was an 80-year-old lady. Her son was abusing wow. her. And there was no way I was going to put her on a train to Norwich or wherever there was a refuge space. So we started this pilot project with the council. It took me four years to get this refuge up and this actually charity up and running for that reason because I would not bend on the rules. And actually that's, um, I can't remember when it was registered, it's quite a while ago now, and actually that's working really well because I've been able to help all these women that can that are working within the area or they've got like three or four children that may be sons of the age of 16 or something. Um, I've got gypsy travellers I've had on a base violence, all the stuff that's quite difficult to get a refuge for. Mm. So, um, it's amazing. Got, yeah, then we do lots of groups and I've, I've started doing a lot of mindful stuff with the clients. We cook, I can't cook for toffee, but I've got people <laughs> helping with cooking and art and just trying to give them their life back, you know, because, you know, that, that life has been stripped away from them as well through beatings and um, abuse, emotional abuse, which is so, emotional abuse is so hard to get over. And, mm-hmm. and it's funny you asked me that question about how it's left me. Um, but I was a child, so I'm more resilient. But if my mum, I don't know how she's coped, to be honest. But even today, I go to her and I go, oh, I want to buy this property. I don't know. She's going, just do it. It's fine. It'll be all right. <laughs> so I'll just do it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. This is so incredible, this, this discussion. And we can carry on for... You know, for hours, I think, as I say, this is one chapter of yeah. of your story. Um, but I think for me, I think 
we are coming to the end of our time that 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 we can that we can share and i just want to pick up on some takeaways from the conversation today that certainly something that's particularly struck out for me and from previous conversations that we've had together and and that is the kindness of strangers mm-hmm. you know it could just be a small thing such as 2p that has such a such a profound mm-hmm impact and uh, and I know that you you shared a story one time with me when you moved into a new rental property and you came to the front door and the neighbors had put baskets of food on your yeah. front doorstep yeah. um you know as a way to make you feel welcome and 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 that you are paying that forward in everything yeah. that you're doing the charity work that you're doing the food parcels through the pandemic mm. so Lisa what was a take takeaway for you yeah, I, so much. Where do you start? Where do you start? Um, and uh, just going back to what you were saying about the kindness of people, I wonder, you know, that guy that gave your mum the 2P, mm-hmm. think where that's led, you know, that's, know. And, and, you know, talking about it today, it, it, it's amazing. So you never know. One little One thing, act, yeah. little act of kindness, yeah. But for me, what mm. I'm taking from this is is confirmation that, you know, even though you can reach the very low points in your life, times when we're not functioning properly, sad mm. times and, and, and liking your situation, unsafe situations. Mm. But, you know, it's possible to bounce back and keep yeah. hope alive, you know. Oh, there's always, always a light at the end of the tunnel, always. Yeah. And as mm. you said, no problem lasts forever. No. So, you know, my mum's not only... like every day. She's always yeah. she's still saying it today. And she's been yeah. indoors well... since March. <laughs> Bless her. Yeah. Bless her. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, not only wise words, but words of experience for both from both yeah. of you. So, you know, absolutely. So, uh, you know, thank you so much for sharing your story, Hazzy. It's been well, a, an absolute inspiration. And, you know, not to mention fascinating. It's it's there's so much there and so much. And Gosh, if anyone listening, if you could just go and give someone not two p, but um, <laughs> you know, if you could pass, as you say, you're you're p- passing on now. But yeah, yeah, where where does it lead you? But yeah, thank you so much. No, thank um, you. So I, I have to say, we've we've um, oh, don't we? We need to know how people can get in touch with you. Actually, Hazzy, can you give us an idea of website addresses and etc. Yeah, etc. Sure. I've got a new website now. I've started um, doing mentoring for anybody who wants to um, go into property. And it's www.thepropertyqueen.co.uk. And my New Leaf page, the charity page is um, website is newleafsupport.org. So, okay. And I've got um, an email address if you want it. Okay. So if you're happy to share. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's Hazzy, which is H-A-S-Y at reardonproperties.co.uk. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, as we say, sadly, we've reached the end of the podcast, despite wanting to know much, much more. (laughs) We do have to come to a close. So massive thanks, Hazzy, for sharing your time, your story and very, very special memories, which, you know, honestly, we've been honoured to be on the receiving end of, um, you know, so thank you. Um, you. Isla, have we got any updates or announcements before we go? 
just a little mini celebration that this is our 14th podcast. So Yay. just to, I know, just a reminder <laughs> um, that there are many previous episodes to listen to that you can find uh, on all of your favorite podcast platforms. And we are keeping the stories coming monthly. So keep in touch with us on our Facebook and Twitter pages, which is at The Biz Diaries. Brilliant. Okay. Well, we can't go without giving thanks to Paul Cheese uh, for our fantastic jingle and for editing Mm -hmm. the podcast. And of course, enormous thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion and you'll join us for our next podcast. Bye for now. Bye-bye. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this edition of The Business Diaries. We would love to hear your feedback. Please find us on Twitter and Facebook at The Biz Diaries. 